This is the PowerShell Podcast, the podcast for PowerShell and the PowerShell community. You might just learn something. I think you'll enjoy it. The PowerShell Podcast is a PDQ production, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to PowerShell Podcast. I am the clear reason that everyone is here, Jordan along with the guy that does 95% of the work for none of the appreciation, Andrew Plaw. I get some appreciation. I get some. (laughs) No, they're all here for me. I am delightful. You're just a part of it. You are relatable. You are connectable. (laughs) Yes. But But it's not just us, man. No, honestly, the real reason people are here is for who's the guest, who who are we talking to? And today we have a a legend. Long overdue. Joe Bennett. This is one where I think a lot of people said, hey, you should interview Jay Cool at some point. And uh, I don't know. It's been a long time, but we're glad you're here. It's been in the works. Thanks. Yeah. I, it's one of those. I'm happy to do it. Happy to have you. Um, we were talking about doing a pre-show this week, and we only had one uh, item, and it's an item that our esteemed guests can contribute to. And so this week, uh, check the show notes. There's a dev.to link from Stephen Murawski, just enough Git for GitOps. And Joel, you were saying that you do quite a bit of GitOps these days. Yeah, we're um, we're moving into Kubernetes. And the more Kubernetes we do, the more GitOps we do. Um, I, uh, we, I will say that to a certain extent, you know, GitOps is really just CI/CD, in a sense, right? Like the whole idea is that you everything happens when you do a check-in, um, and we are doing that with our infrastructure. Um, we're doing that with our software in Kubernetes. Um, we're doing CI/CD deployments now. I will say, in our environment, <laughs> in our environment, everything's just getting continuously deployed to the dev environment. Mm -hmm. Um, We aren't in prod yet. Um, But our our Kubernetes clusters are all all the way to prod, uh, controlled by configuration in Git, and you check it in, and it just automatically applies. Um, Right. And I I have to say, like, to me, a a big part of it is just it's it's an adjustment in how you work. And in who owns the responsibility of doing the rollback, right? Because you can do a rollback by just reverting a commit. Um, right. And that means that no longer does the developer need to contact me to get his infrastructure rolled back to the previous version. He can just roll back that commit. Um, nice. So it's a just big, to, big change. Just to kind of break it down and make sure I'm understanding it correctly. So this is like a CI CD pipeline sort of, right? So you can imagine a pipeline on one end code is committed and then certain actions can take place until the end when it produces some yeah, kind so, of online <clears throat> Excuse me. In, um, in the Kubernetes world, GitOps usually means that there's a secondary uh, controller that runs on the cluster. Um. Or, well, I guess it doesn't have to run on the cluster. It has to have an agent on the cluster, and usually it just runs on the cluster. But essentially, it's checking Git for new commits. Uh, it's watching uh, a branch or several branches 
or a branch per app or whatever. Um, and when a change is committed, it pulls it down and applies it. And in, in the case of Kubernetes, you know, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like anything else that's infrastructure as code. You have a text file like bicep file or, a, um, you know, arm JSON or it whatever. It kind of defines in this case your environment that you need. Yeah. And in Kubernetes, you're defining everything, right? Network, the what software, how many copies, what the what the health checks are supposed to be, all of the different things. It's all in that file. So this thing, whenever you make a commit, it pulls it down. It does the like linting thing to make sure that everything's okay, and then it applies it or tries to. Um, and yeah, and it and it is very much like a traditional you know CI/CD build system where it triggers when you make your uh, merge to your branch, right? So you can have other branches and it doesn't care. As soon as you put it in the branch that it's watching, let's say main, then boom, everything goes, right? Yeah. And we do, in, in ours, we have one big repository with folders for each cluster. Um, so when you check something in to your main app, each of the clusters has a pointer to that and they all deploy it. Um, but you can check something into a single cluster and just deploy like a dev version of the app. Cool. And I, I think that's uh, becoming more and more common as a way for, I guess, companies to I do think, things. I think it's the the only way that you should do something like Kubernetes. Because otherwise, you're essentially the only other way to work with Kubernetes, right, is you're sending YAML files up and applying them. And then the source of truth ends up being the cluster itself, right? So if you want to know what's supposed to be on the cluster you don't know you have to check what's on the cluster not what's supposed to be on the cluster um so with with GitOps, you got the what's supposed to be on the cluster is what's in your git repository um it gives us dr as well of course because it means that i can point another cluster at that same um folder in my git repo and it'll come up the same way as the first one right now when people are trying to learn this, do you think that it's hard, it's complex, or can it be broken down easily? How should people approach learning it? Because I think, from what I understand, it might be helpful to understand it conceptually before diving into one particular aspect of it. But what's your opinion? I think, um, yes, I think you need to pick it up a little bit at a time, especially because most people who are learning GitOps are also, at the same time, learning everything there is about Kubernetes, right? Because usually most people, most applications of GitOps are for Kubernetes specifically. When people say GitOps, they almost always mean Kubernetes. They, they very rarely are talking about legacy stuff. Now we do basically the same thing with our other infrastructure. You know, we have all these repos that have bicep in them that define uh, resource groups in Azure. Um, we have repos with Terraform in them. Um, and, and we CICD those, you know, following a more traditional CI pipeline with steps that applies it, right? Whereas with GitOps, you're usually using an app that has all those steps hard-coded. You can't change them. You just commit and it happens. Um, so I think the it's important to, if especially if you're going to like let's say pick up Argo CD or pick up Flux and apply it into 
uh, Kubernetes cluster, you need to know what you're doing in Kubernetes before you do that. Um, but the main concept, of, uh, the main concepts of GitOps, um, I think you can apply anywhere. Um, well, at least anywhere where you have that infrastructure as code, um, because you can you can uh, you can do GitOps with pipelines, basically, is what I'm trying to say, or or you know workflows or whatever you want to call them. Um, you absolutely can do that same thing. You get that same effect of hey, when I check it in, it deploys all the things. If I roll back the check in, it it redeploys the old ones, right? Um, there's a little bit of there, there. There might be a little bit more work you have to do to to make sure that your your rollback can clean up, right? So in in the uh, in the bicep world, if you're not doing complete deployments, then if you want to roll back, you have to delete the resource group and redeploy from scratch. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes, um, because the Without that complete deploy, your deployment doesn't clean up what was there before. Um, but Bicep does have, or ARM does have that concept of a complete deployment where I say this is the full description of everything that should be in the resource group. And if there's anything in the resource group that isn't deployed by this deployment, go ahead and remove it when I'm done. And, it, and that's basically how, I mean, that's basically how Flux or Argo work on your Kubernetes cluster as well. So when companies are hiring for GitOps, and I know GitOps is increasing in popularity, like you said, as Kubernetes does, are they, and I imagine people are joining a team with maybe somebody who knows a lot about it, maybe junior, senior, whatever level, level people, are they hiring for people with a super complete knowledge set, or perhaps they have a background in, in similar things and have an understanding of some of the steps, or where do you, do you have a good feel for where the industry is in terms of are we training people a little bit? Are we? Where are we with that? I don't. I don't think I have a good feel for where the industry is as a whole. I know um, it varies a great deal depending on the industry that you're in, um, and whether you're in a Windows or Linux centric world. Um, where I am, we are Azure centric and Windows centric. Um, the funny thing is that we've made the decision going into Kubernetes to use Linux containers and not try to continue doing Windows. Um, we'll see how long that lasts because I think, you know, behind the scenes, I'm prepping my Windows container foo. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that eventually we're going to get to the point where we're going to say, okay, we want to bring that thing into the containers because it's like the last thing running in that vm or that data center we got to get it out of there and we're not going to port it because it's old and nobody remembers who wrote it um but but those kinds of um those kinds of things are in our future i think <clears throat> because of that we are having trouble hiring because we can't really hire linux experts that are kubernetes experts because our our pipeline doesn't <laughs> it's very hard to find them when you don't have anybody in the interview pipeline that can tell whether they're any good or not. Um, and so we are hiring people who can script. If you can code your way out of a paper bag in Python or PowerShell or um, 
I really, I don't actually care what language, as long as you can code your way out of a paper bag with in, in a language and you can talk to me about infrastructure and you know what a subnet is and a VNet is and these kinds of things, the rest of it, you can learn on the job. Um, I think I'm probably the only one on my team that's quite that relaxed about the requirement. Um, so you wouldn't like what I just said, doesn't really hold true in the hiring process. Um, we have a lot of pieces that we use, you know, VMware and F5s and Azure that we want people to know something about. Um, but we aren't like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, we aren't, we aren't trying to find that person that knows all the things. Um, Mm -hmm. they're very, they're, they're very rare. There's not enough of us in the hiring world out there to be able to find somebody that knows like our, our tech stack, right. Is primarily PowerShell. Um, and Azure DevOps and Kubernetes and YAML and, you know, kubectl and all this automation around Git and all, you know, so there's, um, there's two conflicting, I guess I would say not conflicting, but traditionally two different sets of backgrounds that need to come together. Um, and on top of that, you know, like the apps that we deal with, the the code that's coming into our cluster is half in .NET and well more than half in .NET. It's mostly in .NET and increasingly in Node. Um, and so it's it's you know the the number of people that know both of those stacks is small as well. And if you throw that in on top of hey, can you write PowerShell? Um, and do you know Kubernetes? Forget it, right? Um, yeah. Those people are in high demand, and we don't really need to hire those people because I can train them. Um, so we just want somebody that knows one of those really well. Um, cool. Can learn. Seems like an interesting <laughs> area, and you're you're solving some fun problems. So I imagine some of our listeners. That's what keeps me. Uh, that's what keeps me happy. Yeah, solving fun <laughs> problems. It seems like any time that there is a new, I don't want to say new, but a newer thing or where different technologies start to merge like this, there is a great opportunity for those that have some grasp on one to jump in early and become the new, like build themselves up to that. So it feels like if you have an interest in any of this stuff, it's a field right now where you can get in early, maybe with a less ideal skill set and build the skill set and become ultra valuable. I mean, you guys, you guys don't necessarily know my background very well, but I'm a developer. I, I come from, you know, I, I, uh, I learned C sharp. Uh, well, I, I won't tell you what I learned as my first programming language, but I learned <laughs> dates me too much. Um, but I learned C sharp. I came into the, into the professional world as a C sharp developer. And, um, and I, I was a web developer. I was working on web teams and, um, I was really passionate about automating things. And so when PowerShell came out, I got into PowerShell because it was a scripting language for the .NET framework, which I had learned really well, right? And I was like, this lets me leverage the knowledge I already have in a new place, right? So this is wonderful. And I jumped in on that early on, um, started blogging about it. That's how I got to be an MVP at Microsoft was just because I was a, a technical blogger like other people were blogging 
hey, getting started with PowerShell, your first hello world, right? And I'm blogging how to call .NET APIs or how to make a WPF window in PowerShell 1.0 before we could do STA threads, right? That kind of nonsense. Um, <laughs> but um, the the whole the whole process there led me to a job at Splunk, which was DevOps adjacent. But I was a, at Splunk, I was a C-sharp or Python programmer. And it was my first job doing Python. I didn't really know Python, but they didn't really care if I knew Python. They knew that I was a programmer and that I knew the, the, you know, the automation world and they were looking for that. Um, and when I left there, I, did, I went back to doing WPF C-sharp development for a while. But at some point I had an opportunity where somebody was like, you know, we're trying to transition from on-premise to Azure and we need people who know a broad array of things. And more importantly, we have this giant library of PowerShell that we need to maintain. And so we need a PowerShell expert. Um, and I, I remember I called the hiring manager. Well, actually didn't call him. He was on our user group the um so i i lead the powershell online i i i call it the powershell virtual user group i don't think that's a catchy term that has caught on so people call it the powershell slack or the powershell discord depending on which one they're on um but we have it fully bridged so there's like i don't even know anymore i can't keep track 100 channels let's say on slack and on discord that are bridged across so they work on both sides and a couple of those channels cross into other communities. So we have a SQL channel that is actually joined to the SQL server community. And we have a IRC channel that's joined into Libera chat and uh, a couple other things like that that are bridged to other places. So we, had a, we have a room in there that's open for people to post job listings and whatever. And he had posted it in there. And I had called him, or not called him, but privately messaged him and said, how much is that job offering? And he answered me and I said, oh, thanks. And I just moved on because it wasn't enough money. <laughs> and he messaged me back a couple of days later, like, wait, are you asking for yourself? And I said, well, I mean, not, not if that was the answer, no. Um, and he said, no, no, but if it's you, I can, we can, we can talk. <laughs> we can do something different because if it's you, I can build a team around you. And so I went there and I honestly, I, I'm, this is one of those silly things. I did not realize when I went there, but it turns out that I'm pretty darn good at recruiting. Because when I go out and tell people, hey, I've got openings on my job, there were a bunch of people that wanted to come work with me. So we hired three or four guys um, and we transitioned that company to be an all Azure government cloud certified thing. Um, and that was a lot of fun. So now I'm doing it. I'm doing the same thing at another company, um, trying to help them get into Azure cloud. Um, and of course this time we're doing it by going into Kubernetes, um, which is even more fun because I haven't done that before. <laughs> so I think, um, the, the big thing, the, the point of that story is that transition where I just suddenly, I got an opening and I, I was like, yes, I would love to do DevOps. Um, and 
I had I right prior to that, I was a C sharp developer. Um, and on that job, I think I probably wrote less than 400 lines of PowerShell or I mean, C sharp the whole time I was there. Um, but it, but it was, you know, mostly PowerShell. So it was a language I was already familiar with, but it was all new stuff, but it was the tangent, the, the very, very close of what I had already been doing. Right. And I think that our industry is constantly in that state of, Hey, look at this shiny new thing. Infrastructure is code. Right. Um, and you go, well, I don't know anything about infrastructure as code. And I go, well, yeah, but I mean, neither does anybody else. We need a million people that know how infrastructure is code. And we have like 10,000, you know what I mean? And um, we're obviously, I'm obviously, <laughs> we're not at 10,000 anymore, but, um, but, but in that, in those early days, anybody can be an infrastructure as code expert because nobody knows anything. And your manager doesn't know, and his manager doesn't know, and all you need to have is a willingness to learn that thing, and 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 a proficiency for programming in the first place, right? So if you can write code, it doesn't really matter if it's PowerShell or Python or C Sharp or JavaScript. If you can write code and you're interested, then you have that opportunity. And the same thing is happening now with GitOps. The the primary language in GitOps is YAML. You really don't need to be much of a programmer to write YAML. I mean, <laughs> you just have to be able to read the spec, you know, look at the spec and understand what you need to write in the document. That's, that is a, a skill, but it's not a, but it's not a skill that takes years of experience. It's a skill you can pick up in two weeks at summer camp. You know what I mean? Um, and so, I think we want, you know, my team, we want to hire people with scripting experience. Um, but I have a couple of people that are C sharp developers that, that had never done DevOps before they came to work on this team. Um, and they're honestly very good. And they're some of the best guys on the team because they're technical and uh, detail oriented. <laughs> Um, in a way that some of the guys that come from an IT background aren't because um, they're used to just clicking around a little bit more than the guys that come from the programming background. Right? Um, and so it's, it's a, we, you know, we, we build a team that's a mix of people and everybody teaches each other and we all got to be willing to say, I don't know this. Can somebody explain it to me? Um, I think it's, it's a, it's important for us to lay that like, humility thing right that to, to be able to say i don't know this can somebody show me um because we're all learn. i mean all of us are learning something on this on this path um and I, I don't see an end to it personally like when i look out and i go okay well kubernetes it it is clear to me i don't know about anybody else kubernetes is great but it is not the end of innovation in this thing because it is really really hard like, you know, the whole reason why we're doing Kubernetes as part of our transition into Azure is because there's no way we're going to run Kubernetes on our own hardware, right? It was, it, it's, it's way too big of a leap for our, for the skill set that we have. Um, and I'm still picking up new concepts every week, 
when I'm when I'm working with Kubernetes. You know, the other day we just had one of these moments where I said, okay, you know what, guys, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna rewrite our like getting started templates that we're giving people for deploying their app the first time because we've missed the whole concept here that we should have had from day one. And after I rewrite the templates, we're going to have to go through everybody's apps and add this stuff in because we just missed it. Um, and I think that's like the, um, that that's the reality of our world, right? We're, we're, we're always evolving and Kubernetes is going to evolve. Maybe the next big thing will be Kubernetes too. Maybe it'll be uh, <laughs> Docker Compose comes back. Right. Um, I've just, I'll tell you what, you laugh because I saw you laugh and nobody heard you, but I saw that. <laughs> I was this, out in order to know two, two weeks ago. I was, I took like a Friday afternoon and I was just Googling around trying to see what's happening out there in the tech world in my neighbor, neighborhood. Right. And I found a whole bunch of companies that are offering some variation on instant environments in your Kubernetes cluster for development. The idea is basically that you either hand over a Kubernetes cluster or they give you a Kubernetes cluster. And I say give uh, for lots of money, right? Um, <laughs> but, but the idea is that your developers can go in and click a button and get an environment, get, get deploy their thing into a pristine dev or prod like environment where they can test their code right and and most of these have some tie into your ci cd so literally every pull request creates a new kubernetes cluster um and deploys this thing it's not now you understand they're not actually creating new kubernetes clusters they're creating namespaces in existing clusters but to the user to the developer it appears essentially as a full cluster they can do whatever they need to do and they're they're doing this on the fly, and half of them are using Docker Compose instead of Kubernetes YAML. And the reason is because Docker Compose lends itself really well to I want to describe three or four things that all need to be deployed together. They talk to each other, and um, I don't really care about the details of, under the covers because that's all been configured already, right? I just want to deploy this app with three containers that talk to each other. Docker Compose, the, the, the YAML for Docker Compose is a lot smaller than the YAML for Kubernetes to do that, right? And so they're, they're building on top of Compose. And I'm like, okay. And Compose nowadays, Docker Compose can target Kubernetes. So, um, so this seems to be, full and this, is, yeah, this has gone in a, a conversation I wasn't expecting, but it's fascinating. <laughs> but, one one thing that I've picked up from a lot of this is you seem to have a knack for picking up on what technology is going to take off and jumping in on that. And I guess my question is, I don't know if it's sub subconscious or if you're aware of it, but what are you looking for when you decide this is where I'm going to make the next leap because it's going to become something? That's a good question. I I I I think I can honestly say that um, I I I have it on my uh, I have on my resume that I'm a challenge driven developer. Um, and what I mean by that is the the thing that will keep me interested and in, and the reason why I'm still here at this company where I am right now, um, I think I, I'm allowed to mention them. It's not, I, I'm working at Lone Depot right now. 
we're not doing that great right now because we're a mortgage company and mortgage com- the mortgage industry right now is kind of a shambles um, because interest rates have gone up and, and Loan Depot in particular was a was focused for a long time on refinancing mortgages. Um, so we were we were killing it back when interest rates were you know zero point something. Um, so we are we're pivoting. We're doing home. We're doing home equity lines of credit. We're doing a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and I try not to worry about the business side of things because it's just not. I'm not interested. If I'm perfectly honest, um, I'm I'm much more interested in the technology side of things and the the place where business and technology intersect for me at, at the level where I'm willing to work because I'm always I, you. One of the things that I have done repeatedly through my career is avoid getting promoted to be a manager. So one of the reasons why I pivot is when I reach that point where I can't not be a manager, I find something else to do. Um, <laughs> if you consider showing must value, and then they'll just keep you there anyway. I love, I love <laughs> teaching, and and I love being like that senior lead on a team where I'm mentoring people. Um, but I just, I don't want to be the guy that has to make the decision to lay people off. And I don't want to spend all my day in meetings. And my bosses spend the vast majority of their time, you know, meeting with other bosses, talking about what they're going to do and not actually doing it. And so that's where I'm like, no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, but, um, as far as like where I go, it's, it's about that challenge. It's about looking for something interesting that i Feel like, hey, I want to know how to do that. Um, so it's it is very much not uh what was the word that you used? It's it's very much not intentional. I'm not evaluating um with that in mind. It's something that catches my eye and I go, that's interesting. That that first pivot where I stopped, you know, being a developer and became a DevOps engineer, I'll tell you the truth. When I hired on at question mark. Um, which is, by the way, the name of the company, not like a stand-in for <laughs> me not telling you. Um, when I hired on at Question Mark, they had to promise me that after we migrated everything to Azure, that I could have a job on their web development team. Because I was like, I'm going to do this thing, and then I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do build engineer. I did, I did that like a long time ago in my career and DevOps is frequently code for build engineer. I don't want to do that. I, I want to be a developer and I want interesting problems to solve, not the build failed. Right. Um, so they did, they promised me that of course, then they outsourced that whole department to India, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but um, but that was that was part of my I was afraid, right? Like I was like, I don't know if I really want to do DevOps. I need an out. Um, and I don't worry about that kind of stuff anymore because I've found for myself at least that if I'm willing to pivot, I can always, you know, if I'm willing to do the work that needs to be done, I can always find a job. So um, it's you follow opportunity and just trust in yourself to be able to do it. Yeah. That's it's gotta be nice to have that kind of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I I wish that I could teach it, but 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 I do have that. I just I don't have to think about that. I don't worry about it 
Now, obviously, part of that is just earned, right? I've been doing this thing for decades now. I can say decades now. The, you know, the, that's uh, on the end, right? A 15-time MVP. Oh, I am a 15-time MVP. And I, and, and I, you know, I, um, I have enough experience to say, yeah, it won't be a problem. Uh, do I need to learn something new? Fine. No big deal. Just as long as you're okay letting me learn that on the job, then we'll be fine. Um, so it's got to be pretty important for you to get a fill during the interview that they're going to give you the leeway to learn the new thing then. Yes, it is. Go, going I, in and having to learn with no grace period seems like a... I will say I... I explicitly look that like the, the thing that will turn me off of your company faster than anything else is if I say, by the way, I'm a Microsoft MVP. I go to the MVP conference every year. That means I'm going to be, I need a week to go to that. And I speak at the PowerShell summit every year. I need a week to go to that. And I would like to go to a conference to learn. So that's going to be three weeks that are not my vacation. Right. And if you're okay with that, that's the that is all I need to understand how you value learning, right? And how you value personal development, because those are the key things, right? For me, if you're okay with that, I don't necessarily now what I really want to hear you say is, oh yeah, we pay for two conferences every year, right? That's what I really want to hear you say. Um, as the manager. Yeah, absolutely. We pay every, we we send everybody to a conference every year. Um, or, or, oh no, not in addition to that, you're going to have to fly out to our corporate headquarters twice a year. Fine. Great. Um, but cause I only work remote anymore. Um, and, um, I, I, uh, I, I think I, despite having been full remote for a long time now, I really value the the investment that the company makes to say, we want everybody to come together a couple times a year, meet each other, have some team building time and have some planning time where, you know, we pulled you out of work and we, and we had you do this, this networking and planning and team building. Um, I think that's, it's super valuable for teams to see each other, to meet each other face to face. My last job, I actually never met anybody face to face except when I coincidentally went to Ignite and met my boss at Ignite um because he and I both went to the conference um but um but that was like I'd been working there for uh I don't know a couple of years at that point when I met him um and I'm I'm okay with that right but it's so much it's so much nicer when you have that oh yeah once a year, we're going to ask everybody to fly out to somewhere, you know, and the, um, at Splunk, they would make it different places every year. It's like, oh, we're going to Napa Valley. We're going to Denver. We're going to whatever. Um, but we would we would have that time. And in fact, they had a um, they had a commitment for every team to get together once a year or twice a year, rather. And then they had a hackathon for the development org which included the devops org or the sales tech because i was actually a developer in the sales org at that time um to come together and do this hackathon um which was 
part part of the purpose of that was to have all developers spread out and work with other developers on other teams so that you get to know people that you are interacting with but not working with on a team so that you have less uh well ideally so that when you need help from that other team you have somebody you can call that knows you and recognizes you as an as not some lazy guy that's trying to pawn work off on me right but another professional that i respect because i worked with them on the hackathon project yeah we do that uh where we work once a year the whole company comes to headquarters and they plan stuff and it is very helpful to have those in-person relationships with people on your team but also across teams where like you said they feel comfortable reaching out to you because they know you're approachable they know you're interested in actually solving problems and so on and so forth um yeah to your point about learning and jobs letting you do that it's like do you want to work for an org that doesn't empower you to do your job or do you want to work for an org because people can say whatever they want but unless they're putting budget behind it you know it, is that really their values it's um, funny i expect it yeah i don't know uh, i mean my very first job ever in in tech i mean because i worked in factory jobs during high school and college you know but whatever but when i was my very first job after college um i got married <laughs> i got married a year after i graduated i got married um but that i spent that intermediate year like uh doing volunteer work out in in uh the channel islands and um, but that my very first professional job, so to speak, was at Xerox. And at the time, Xerox was, you know, Fortune 100, big behemoth of a company. But they had an expectation of, yeah, we pay people. I got into, I got into what they called the technician opportunity program, which was for people who did not have a relevant bachelor's degree because I, I, I had a I had a bachelor's degree in youth ministry and cross cultural studies at the time. It's the whole story, but um, but they put me through a, a bachelor's degree in computer science because I had started doing programming work. I was there doing the you know doing the programming, but I didn't have the computer science background, and I felt like it would be helpful. But they paid for that. They they gave me time off work, um, and they paid for it all. And then when I finished that, I did a master's degree on that. Um, now that you know, they had they had some some caveats, right? Like you finish a master's degree, you owe us two more years of work. Like you can't leave the company, or you're going to have to pay the the money back, um, which was fine. I was ready to make that trade at that point. Um, but um, but but having that shows a willingness to invest in your people, right? Um, and it built a lot of, um, what's the word trust? Well, I was very committed to the company. I stayed at Xerox at least five years longer than I should have stayed at Xerox. Um, in the sense that I, I was not getting paid what I was worth for at least five years while I was at Xerox. And that wasn't because I owed Xerox that time because I had worked that time already. Um, it was because I liked the company and I and I liked the people that I worked with. And even though I could see that the stock was going down and that we were outsourcing our work, we were desperate. You know, the company 
was trying to pivot from, hey, we make printers and copiers to anything that might be relevant in a world where nobody cares about putting things on paper. Um, Because I can email it to you, right? Um, And um, so they they were definitely flailing a bit. And my teammates were leaving, right? I was watching people go. Um, but I was loyal to the company, not out of some sense that they were going to succeed, but out of some sense of obligation, you know, because they were good to me and I wanted to be good to them, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, I feel that like to a lesser degree, I I think I've learned a little bit my lesson as at Xerox about sticking around too long. Um, but I feel that to a lesser degree, anywhere where the company is willing to invest in their people, because I feel like if you're willing to invest in me, then I'm willing to take a chance on you and give you a little bit more effort, and a little bit more of a chance to turn things around than I would otherwise. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I, I, uh, I've worked a couple places where they don't do that. Um, and I didn't last long there. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, uh, like, like even subconscious trade-off, if you will. Yeah. And it definitely, if you're hiring smart people, um, you're going to want people who want to learn. And if you're hiring that type of person, you got to empower them. And then they'll, like you said, be loyal. They'll do more work. They'll be more invested. So I think smart leaders see that hopefully more and more as we, as tech professionals kind of grow and improve, hopefully freaking leadership, the people with the budgets uh, learn as well and have that kind of modern perspective on approaching your job. But I wanted to take a moment to highlight some of your favorite PowerShell talks because <laughs> you've been a long time MVP, right? You've given some great talks over the years. Are there any in particular that stand out to you as interesting or worth sharing? Cause I know there's a bunch of them. Um, gosh, I don't know. I think, um, it's funny. The, the very first thing that I produced that had staying power, is now probably almost impossible to find on the internet because there's a blog post that I wrote about error handling in PowerShell and how there's so many different modes, right? You got exceptions and you got errors and you got like standard error output. Um, and that was on my blog. And I don't think you can find that anymore because my blog went away and came back and uh, the content's mostly only available on archive.org. Um, but um, I, I gave a talk last year at the PowerShell summit about invoke build. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say for the record that I had a huge bias against invoke build when I first started using it because I didn't like how it was written. And the, the, one of the things that hit me, um, after playing with that for a while um, was that it was that, that that what I didn't like about it was primarily that it was written in PowerShell one and it shows right because there's style choices and decisions that were made that that have been uh, outdated. Like, so, well, no, like for example, it it you you can install it as a module from the PowerShell gallery now. 
But when you install it, if you do get command, the command that comes out of it is invoke build. And that invoke build is not a command that the, that the module exports. It's an alias that points at a script because actually invoke build is not a module. It's a script. <laughs> um, and that's weird. Yeah, it's very weird. And, and if you are like me, where you look at things and judge them based on how they're implemented, sometimes I kind of went, what? This is gross. Um, but I, <laughs> I was just yeah, last Friday, I was trying to do something at work and I said, I need, I need something to convert this text from the space delimited nonsense to comma separated. And I went, I have a script for that. Uh, import delimiter or convert delimiter. Where is that thing? And I went looking, of course it's, I, I it's a script I wrote uh, back when poshcode.org was a script repo because PowerShell gallery didn't exist. Um, and I found it in my Git repo on poshcode. Uh, the, you know, I have two, I do have, I've mixed identity on, on GitHub. I have a poshcode org and I have Jekyll, my personal account. Um, but for some reason, I sometimes post things in the J in the poshcode one instead of in Jekyll. I always have a reason for that, but it's not important. Um, the, the, the old poshcode site is on that poshcode org and it has all the scripts are there. Um, and it actually renders if you go to poshcode.org slash scripts, the site, the, the, the things are all there, but I've discovered that uh, Google doesn't know they're there. So I didn't realize that until just recently, but they've, they've disappeared off of the search engine. So you can't find them anymore. I need to like point some links at them or something. Um, but, I, but that script I went and looked at it and I was like, Oh my goodness, this thing is written like PowerShell 1.0 style with no pram block, you know, um, handles mandatory parameters by throwing an exception, that kind of thing. Um, and that is what I, that is the, the influence that I see. I'm not saying it's all that old because uh, invoke build has been maintained, but the key is that invoke build was written back then. And, um, and it has been maintained with the intent of keeping backwards compatibility. So it works very well all the way back to who knows how far back. Um, and not only that, but because the developer for Invoke Build is a developer and he's using Invoke Build to build his code projects. So there's an IB.CMD, right? And an IB.SH. You can run this thing in your DOS, right? Or in Bash and invoke invoke build and it runs PowerShell and starts itself, that kind of thing. And the decision to not be a module is so that when you build multiple, uh, if you build one module and then you build another module, the separation, because it's a script, none of, nothing, no variables get carried over from one invocation to another. So you, you can do whatever you want to do. You can pollute his namespace or whatever. And it doesn't affect your ability to do another build. So there's reasons, right? This is what I'm getting at. There's reasons why it's done the way it is. And it's a great tool. Uh, I did a I did a whole talk. I, I probably didn't spend this much time explaining why I think that the design choices are there. But I did a talk about how to use it at the PowerShell Summit last year. 
Um, I think that's a good talk. Um, I think it it lends itself well to your tempting fate patterns and practices for shareable yeah. scripts and functions because it sounds like there could be a little that, bit more of that. Uh, that talk I gave I've given twice. I gave it last year in an attempt to what's the right word? Well, and it was called tempting fate last year because I gave it. I last gave it before COVID, and in that. When I gave it at that year, it was just called, uh, what was it called? Patterns and Practices b- uh, for Building Survivable PowerShell Scripts or something. Survivable being the keyword because the uh, bulletproofing, that's what it was called. That's right. Bulletproofing. So, <laughs> so, of course, I walked on stage early, set up my laptop and um my laptop showed like nine external monitors when i plugged in the projector um and none of them were the projector <laughs> and the long story short is i actually ended up borrowing somebody's laptop oh, which was I possessed that. i swear um and he had um now all of these are things that i found out while i was giving him my talk Right. But he had his VS code using some kind of setting sync from his desktop. And it was set so that the laptop was slave to the desktop. So when you change settings, it would change back. <laughs> and my whole talk had been built around the idea that I had this extension in VS code that did slides. Um, Cause I was, I, they were all written in markdown and I was just going to show them in a side panel in VS code and then be able to toggle back and forth between code and the slides. Um, and that all just went, cra- yeah, it went bad in so many ways. It was just ridiculous. Um, now I did still do my talk. I think I probably started 10 minutes late um, because of, you know, fighting technical issues. Um, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I didn't start 10 minutes late, but I got to content 10 minutes late because of fighting technical issues because i was i was there doing the whole like okay guys so we're gonna try this and uh hi you know my name is and this kind of stuff while i'm like fighting the laptop so that was that was crazy and frustrating and um so i thought i would do it again but that that talk i obviously one of my passions when it comes to powershell is um that we we as a community should all write the best that we can write and and that we should as a community make um that we should all agree on hey this is the best way to do it or or these are good ways to do it maybe uh, maybe we can't agree on what the best way is but these are good ways to do it and that we should be prolific as a as a community at telling other people that are new, Oh, don't do it that way. There's a better way, you know, wrap your, wrap your, wrap your code in a try catch. Um, and don't, don't, uh, you know, d- don't write functions, write a module. Don't, don't write scripts, write a module. Um, and the, these little things like, yeah, you can write scripts. Absolutely. At work, we have a repo full of scripts. And I tell everybody on the team, look, this this is where you put things when it's like a brainstorm or you wrote it to solve a problem 
on while you were on call, put it in there and then put a ticket in the backlog to get that thing moved into a module and write tests for it so that we know that it works and that it stays working going forward because otherwise this thing just becomes like the lo- the lost land the, the land of lost toys right like all these things out there and some of them work and some of them don't but nobody knows which ones work and so it's like you might there might be gems in there but we're too scared to use them right um and so there's a whole bunch of patterns and practices i took over um in the, in the posh code org there's a book called patterns and practices blah 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 um <laughs> I should probably know the name of it. Um, but I actually took that over from Don Jones. Um and and um I work on it lightly now and then. And we have a a discussion board associated with it where we talk about, you know, well, we do th- we do stuff like have a poll about how do we want to do white space formatting in the PowerShell community. Do people like OTBS or uh, you know KNR or what? What's the right? Do we do we put do we put our braces on a new line or at the end of the line? That kind of nonsense. So as um, I say, I know OTBS has what the one true brace system. One not, true brace. Yeah, I have not heard the other one. What is what's that? KNR is Colonel and Richie. That uh, that's not right. Ah, I can't remember his name. Anyway, they were the guys that wrote the seminal book on C plus plus um or c even yeah and and they in their book um they basically you know they (laughs) with the hubris of of people who write books said this is the way that you should format your code um but more importantly they said this is the way that code in the book will be formatted and they spelled it out very clearly and they, they basically laid out the rules for how they would format code and it became a standard. The, um, and, and in fact, the one true brace uh, OTBS, as we call it, that actually is a modification of theirs. Um, and it's around that question of whether you put the brace on the end of the line or at the, or on a new line. Um, and it's mostly because in the in the one true in the colonel in the what is his name in the Richie book they had um you you put braces in different places depending on the context so if you're starting a class it needs to go on the next line but if it's at the end of an if then you put it on the end of the line that kind of thing um and the one true brace system was is basically look let's just simplify this always put the brace on the end or if it's the closing brace and you're writing like an if else, it goes on the same line as the else. We don't we don't waste a line to put a brace on it. That's the rule. Now it's much simpler. You don't have to be like, well, if it's in this situation, you put it on a new line. If it's in this situation, you put it on the same line, right? We just one true brace. It's always on the same line. Um, and one true brace won in the PowerShell community because in PowerShell 1.0. You couldn't put a brace on a line by itself if you were typing in the console. So if you were typing in the console and you put an if parentheses, blah, 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 parentheses, enter, it would run and say, sorry, that's not valid. (laughs) But if you put the brace, the open brace on the end of the line, when you hit enter, it would prompt you for, hey, what goes in between these braces, right? 
And um, so you, ha if you wanted to be able to write the code in the terminal, or if you wanted to be able to copy paste it from your editor into a terminal, because back then we didn't have any integrated editors that worked with PowerShell, right? So you were always writing in like Notepad++ and pasting it into the shell to make sure it worked. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the reality. I think um, because of that, we adopted this style and, and the majority of PowerShell code is formatted that way. And I tell people, this is the way that write OTBS. Now, if you want to write it some other way, fine. Make sure you document that in your repo or your, you know, team handbook or your company coding guidelines or whatever, um, and follow it so that it's consistent through all of your code. But, um, but you know, for the, as a general rule in the PowerShell community, we do it this way. Now there are a bunch of people that do Straustrup. Straustrup's another programmer from back in the day who wrote a book and he didn't like what he called cuddled else's. So it's that thing where you put the else, you know, you're writing it if else, and you put the curly braces on either side of the else. He didn't like that. So that was the one place where he would break from the OTBS was he would put, if he, he was writing an if else, he'd start the else on a new line. So he'd close brace and then the word else with the curly brace on the end of the else. So that it was a, a more visible separate statement. Um, it, the else was right up against the, you know, against the left margin. Um, but it's silly, right? Like, like fighting about that is silly. The, the, the key thing is make a decision. And, and in the modern era, the key thing is make a decision and put it in your config for VS code, uh, the and, .vs code folder and, and hit that, hit that format button and, and let it format it according to the rules that we all agreed to. Right. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so if, if you're using the default one for VS Code with PowerShell, it's going to default to the one true brace system. Then. I think so. I think so, because I think they made that. That was one of those things like early in the day when we, we, we were doing this book. We had a very long thread. Hundreds of people voted for, for their favorite bracing system. And then uh, when the PS Script Analyzer was revising rules and they made this uh thing where you could put in different uh they they put in two or three different bracing systems they picked that one as the default because they said well joel's powershell and practice book said like the, there was a community vote and we all agreed that this is the way so we're gonna do that um and i i i believe i could be wrong i believe that the guy that was managing that project at the time didn't actually prefer that one but he went with the vote because it was justifiable right mm. and that's what i tell people a, a big reason for having the book and having it all out there and having the like i leave issues open and th those discussions i leave those open and part of the reason is because i want them to be findable because i want people to see look we had this argument 10 years ago <laughs> And and we all agreed that this is the way it was going to be done. This wasn't something that like Joel just wrote this and said, "Here's how to do it." Right. Right. I never. Nothing. None of the stuff in here is what I just made up. It was I, Don Jones first, and then I've continued that. We were just documenting what the majority opinion was. Right. At least that's what we're trying to do. 
I, I have enjoyed this conversation very much, but it's time to pivot to the most dreaded three questions you'll ever get <laughs> asked. Are you ready? No, but go ahead. Right, these are the common parameters. We ask these for, for every guest and I got, they're, they're near impossible. No one, no one's ever prepped. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I have not prepped. Yeah. All right. Well then, I mean, whew, we'll, we'll see how adaptable you really are right now. Question one, what is one time something went wrong while on the job and what did you learn from it? That's a good one. Um, I think we had a situation recently at work um, where um, we had some, well, we had some teams deploy unintentional that GitOps thing bit us basically a team didn't understand what they were doing one of the development teams didn't understand the implications of what they were doing and they were trying to deploy one microservice and they deployed all five of them instead to production of course um because nobody noticed before it got to production um and so one of the things that i learned from that was that we need to document our assumptions. And I think that's true across the board. I've learned this lesson before. Um, <laughs> you need to say up front to everybody. And, and, and you know, one of the things that we know on my team is that documentation is never good enough. And that's not because you can't write good enough documentation, but it's because it, no matter how much effort you put into documentation, somebody's going to come along and not read it. Um, so we um, we try to back up documentation with reminders and you know these kinds of like pivot moments where I force you to acknowledge that you read the documentation even though you maybe didn't. Um, that kind of stuff. But but the bottom line is we need to be explicit about saying hey this this folder when you say publish we're publishing the whole folder not just the one app and that version number because what what happened in their case was there's a place in the yaml where they are supposed to set which version of the component should be deployed right which version of their container should be deployed and they just put the one component that they wanted to deploy in that spot they didn't put the other four or five rather so they thought, no big deal. We're just deploying this one. But in reality, what happens is we use the default. So latest. <laughs> so we just deploy latest if you don't tell us which version. Um, and that was because when we were doing the work, originally, it didn't occur to us that somebody would put a bunch of stuff in and only want to deploy one, right? Just wasn't an assumption it was an assumption that we made that you'd put you'd deploy one thing and then you'd come and add another thing and then you'd come and add another thing right um and that just turned out not to be the case that's just not how developers were doing it they were working on five things at once and they wanted to release the first one when it was ready and the rest of them were not ready and so we <laughs> we had to revert that and 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 actually to be honest, we had to come up on the on the spot in the release meeting. I had to explain to them uh, 
okay, here's how, here's a way that you can do what you're trying to do without just deleting everything from the YAML and, and starting over with just one app. In, right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I think the, the big thing for me that I learned there is don't, don't just assume that we're all, that we all have the same assumptions, right? If you think it's obvious, you still need to write it down um, and not just write it down. Make sure that you tell people that when they're onboarding, but make sure that you tell your team that when they hire somebody new, that that person needs to know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because we're just, just having it in the readme has never been enough. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good takeaway. And I like the bit about documentation just because, I mean, as someone who's terrible at even doing the basics, it's never good mm -hmm. enough anyway. But I like to hear that even those that put in the work, it's still not good enough. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons we tell people, right? Like, uh, what's his, John, uh, uh, Snover used to have a, a saying about uh, documentation. Trying to remember the exact because I'm gonna horribly misquote him if I if I but it, it was something like documentation uh is like sex when it's bad it's good. Uh even <laughs> or even when it's bad there was there was more to it than that. But the point is that even when it's bad, it's it's better than nothing, right? Um and that's that is that is totally the key thing. Like you have to write it because even when it's bad, it's better than not having it. Um Anyway, yeah. Right. What's your other question? Question one out of the way. Question two. It only gets more difficult from here. With everything that you know now, what's one tip you would give your younger self when you're first starting out? Um, be less afraid to move jobs. Um, be and 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 I guess I would I might even say that as, um, be looking even when you're not looking um keep, keep an eye out because because the the key thing about about it is that your value increases constantly right um and we um we forget that and um as you are uh learning your value is increasing be be prepared to either force that issue at your current employer or look somewhere else because otherwise you're just going to get stuck like I did for a long time in a job where you're not getting paid what you should have been. Um, I, when I left my first job, I got a 80% pay raise and a hundred percent bonus signing bonus for, uh, I got a year's salary. Let's go. <laughs> and that was just the first time that I ever thought Hey, I should go look outside of my company and and you know, that was the first job that I ever took leaving one company to go to a new job. But it was say. because I just didn't know, right? I had no idea that I was worth that on the open market, if you will. Yeah, it's a great first experience though. <laughs> it was. Yeah. All right, well, last last question. This one, I mean, no one ever no one's ever ready for this one. What are your three favorite modules? You can use your own. Um, I was going to say, it's funny. Um, I, I the, the way that I ought to answer that is I ought to say, what's imported when I launch a new terminal? 
um and of course there's not just three so that makes it harder um it, it's it's cheating a little bit to say ps read line i disagree that's not mine but it's kind of built in so it's it, but if you are just using powershell and you don't know what ps read line is oh my goodness please get command ps get command dash module ps read line and then read all the help for all the commands in ps read line because you will be you can customize your environment so much hotkeys you know uh i i i recently post i recently posted a short gif um and actually i'm thinking about it i don't think i i ever posted that on the site that was formerly known as twitter i think i only put it on mastodon um but it uh there's a there's a project that microsoft made a long time ago called codex cli and i have forked it and called it readline ai but it's nothing right it's i i wrote like two lines of code and made the uh and and copied somebody else's pull request because codex is abandoned and somebody else fixed it and i pulled their thing in and wrote a couple lines but it's basically a hook into the ps read line so that you can type a comment and then hit a hotkey and it goes and calls chat gpt and chat gpt writes the code that should have gone under the comment right you did um, that just like 10 days ago you're uh you're going recent it's uh well you know but the, but the point is that ps read line is what enabled that right so you can just set a hotkey and say i want to run this little block of script on the code that's in the terminal that i've already typed and it writes more code in the terminal where you were typing and poof, right? Um, that thing is super powerful and you can do so much with it. Um, I think my other two favorite modules right now are going to be my configuration module, which is a way to give your module settings. So if you have a module, <clears throat> hey, PS3 line author, um, the, <laughs> if you have a module that ought to have in the case of PS Readline, ought to have a configuration file where it saves what people want their configuration to be. Um, all you do with configuration module is you import it, or you make it a required module for your module, and you type import configuration somewhere in one of your commands, and it will it will import a. It basically, there's an export configuration and an import configuration, and both of them detect the module they're running from figure out where on the computer the file should be saved basically it goes in your app data or your dot config local if you're on linux um and it saves a file configuration.psd1 and it's paired with another module called metadata that does serialization to psd1 format uh, so people can or module authors i guess i should say can uh export any object that they have or like a hash table or any object that they have their settings uh, for the module in you can just serialize it to disk and then deserialize it when you start up again um it's a really easy way to give your module settings um and is that was that my third i kind of cheated and got <laughs> metadata in there but i think that's the second one i mentioned so the third one's going to be easy theme um which is which you have to try and check you have to try basically easy theme is uh mod another one that i wrote um and it takes configuration 
and makes it apply to modules that didn't bother doing their own configuration. So you can write, uh, there is a module out there. Now these ones are in pre-release on the PowerShell gallery. So you can find them, but you, but to install them, you'll have to do the allow pre-release. But there is a theme.ps read line out there and a theme.ps style out there. And those two modules that I wrote are just really, really thin wrappers around PS style and PS read line to change colors, change the colors on them, right? So you can, from the easy theme module, you can write a wrapper around whatever you want. I mostly play with colors because I'm really into the um, ANSI escape sequences and making my colors be the way that I want them to be. Um, but easy theme gives you a way to wrap really anything that you can that you can do in a script and it it let you you write a pair of commands like get whatever theme and set whatever theme and um and it and it will serialize the results of that so you when you say export theme it what it actually does easy theme right that you you write a module and in that module you put in your private data an annotation that says I support easy theme. And these this is the command you call for get. And this is the command you call for set in my module. Right. So you can see that in example, I wrote a theme.ps readline. That's an add-on for the PS readline module that just has a get PS readline theme and a set PS readline. Okay. And it sets the colors that PS readline uses for uh, code highlighting. You know that when you're typing in the PowerShell terminal ps readline actually does syntax colorizing right so those colors are settable with in in the ps readline command but they're complicated and it doesn't save them so if you set them you have to put them in your profile or something right so um theme.ps readline lets you set them all and then do export theme and it saves it with a name so you say export theme joel right and now my settings are stored and then when it comes back, I can do import theme Joel and it imports. And in fact, what actually happens is that when you import easy theme, it looks at all your modules and sees, do any of them support easy theme? And if so, have I imported a theme? And if so, let me send the settings from that theme to the modules that are already loaded and vice versa. If you import a theme PS readline, for example, after you've imported a theme with easy theme.psreadline will go to easy theme and say, hey, what theme is running? And it'll call it and set the settings. So it's like a bi-directional thing. But the, the, the key thing is that if you use, I've actually got on my computer, I've got theme PowerShell, theme PS readline, theme PS style, and theme Windows terminal. Um, and those four all work with easy theme to color different parts of what I'm working on, right? So I have a theme saved that has matching colors for the you know the default 16 colors that are in ps read line or i mean in ps style and then code for the uh, ps read line and powershell um and then also does the sorry also does the color scheme for windows terminal i was wondering could you have just like an alternate theme that like shows well for presenting so if you're giving a speech yes, and say exactly why i wrote it yep okay yep. okay so the idea is that you can have multiple themes and you can switch between them in my profile 
I detect if the terminal's elevated and I import a different theme when the when the profile's running elevated so that I get a different. Now, I have over the years I've changed that. It used to be that my uh elevated theme was inverted, right? So it was like a, a red background. Um then I started using a white background with black text for elevated. Nowadays I just change the prompt so that I can tell from looking at the prompt because I don't like that white background anymore. Um, it's too bright. Can't deal with it. So, um, but yes, you can you can uh, have multiple themes and you can switch between them. In point of fact, the theme, let me think, theme.psreadline has a function in it for exporting the, the for, well, importing, I guess I'm not sure. Now that I say that out loud, I can't remember which way I wrote the, the verb there but basically for taking the um the syntax highlighting theme that you're using in vs code and applying it to ps readline so that you can copy your colors out of your vs code theme and put them in ps readline so that ps readline syntax will get highlighted the same colors as you use in vs code um and the theme.ps style or theme.windows terminal one of those has a command for pulling in iterm2 themes. So you can do a get iterm2 theme. And there's like, I don't even know how many hundred or, or whatever themes there that are color schemes for the terminal for the like those base 16 colors that the Windows terminal stores. And you can literally run that from theme, theme Windows terminal um, and, and copy those themes into Windows Terminal so that they're named themes in your Windows Terminal. Um, but you can also obviously apply them to your computer and you can switch. I mean, if you if you were that sort of person, and I am not, but I tried it for a few days just to prove that it could be done, you can get a random theme every morning, apply it to your Windows um, Terminal. Anyway. Mix things up a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if... You're aware of this, but you've actually been speaking to a major celebrity whose excellence shines so bright it's been known to short out people's web cameras if they're uh, on the same call as him. <laughs> and uh, his, his his excellence is focused around uh, none other than shilling power shovel related podcasts. But uh, you have a front row seat to watch the the world expert on on podcast shilling uh, spin his magic. Take it away, Andrew. Jordan, thank you so much. Beloved listeners, thank you for another fantastic PowerShell and knowledge-filled episode. Hit us up with a like, comment, subscribe, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. They can listen to us anywhere, Jordan. They can even watch us on YouTube. That's amazing. You can join us. Oh, wait. You can actually email us first. PowerShell at pdq.com that goes to Jordan and I. You got feedback, things we should cover, awesome projects that you've seen. Um, if you're on Discord, check out the PowerShell official Discord. There are some links below. There's also the Slack. And like Joel mentioned, there's also a way to tap in through IRC. If you want some more of Jordan and I, we're on the PDQ Discord regularly. There's a PowerShell channel. There'll be a link to that. If you want to find us across the interwebs and see what else we're up to, I'm Andrew Plotek. He is DevOps Jordan. And Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we find you? 
It's a pleasure. Um, I'm Jaykel, uh, pretty much everywhere. J-A-Y-K-U-L on Twitter, on uh, Mastodon. I'm at uh, Fostodon, which is the uh, F-O-S-S, Tadon. <laughs> but I'm also Jaykel on LinkedIn and Facebook. And oh, uh, I don't do tech stuff. I don't, well, I don't use LinkedIn really at all. Um, I do it for, you know, when I'm looking for work, but other than that, I really don't use it. Awesome. Um, but I, but yeah. Cool. If, well, if you find a Jake, that, it's probably me. Links in the show notes to all of your stuff, ways to connect with you. It'll all be there. Jordan, another award-winning episode. Joel, thank you for joining us. For having me. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. Two kinds of flavor, two kinds of crunch. The PowerShell podcast is a production of PDQ.com, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.